Well, first, I'd like to welcome you to the LSE again, Vernon. Um, you're a distinguished, possibly the most distinguished constitutional expert in Britain uh, today. And what I'd like to start off with is really to ask you about the unprecedented nature of having so many parties con in contention at a general election, in the sense that, whilst they can't all win, almost any one of them could end up playing a part in the government that comes out at the other side. Well, this is an extraordinary election, and it's a challenge, I think, to the social scientists who can't predict the outcome, but also to the historians, because we've never seen anything like it before. In England, we've got five parties with over 5% of the vote, not just Conservatives, Labour and Liberal Democrats, but also UKIP and the Greens. And, of course, in Scotland and Wales, there are six parties because they're the nationalists there. And we, we've never had that before. And, indeed, most of our elections actually have been two-party elections. And if you go back 60 years to 1955, there were just nine seats in the Commons which weren't occupied by Conservative or Labour parties. And, indeed, I think I'm right in saying that the two major parties, as they then were, won over 95% of the votes. It's Absolutely. a remarkable change. Absolutely. I think, you see, I think it's due to very important social factors. I think all the party, new parties are real parties. And I think UKIP in particular and the SNP appeal to a certain social stratum which is ignored by the other parties, namely those left behind by globalisation, by social and economic change. And therefore I think the multi-party system is here to stay. OK, now, we'll come back to that in a moment, but just let's stay with the outcome of the last general election and the possible and indeed likely outcome of this. As you can just dwell for a moment on the unusual nature of having a coalition government after 2010 and what might happen in the general election that's coming up now. Well, the last election, of course, did result in a hung parliament and a coalition. That itself was new because previous hung parliaments led to minority governments, not to majority coalitions. And uh, the coalitions we've had have really come out of emergency situations, generally war or the 1931 economic crisis. But this coalition was different in another way, that it was brought together after the election. If you look at the 1931 coalition or the 1918 Lloyd George coalition, they actually fought a general election as a coalition. Mm. So you could either vote for that coalition or one of the opposition parties no one actually voted for this coalition. It was constructed after the election and the coalition agreement, which really took on the status of holy writ, really wasn't seen by any voter at all. It was constructed after the election from post-election negotiations. And this is one of the problems if we're going to have coalition governments. Do we have a disconnect between parliamentary government and democratic government? Presumably over time, though, uh, the voters, and indeed parties, would adjust to this. They'd begin to hear things in the run-up to general elections from parties that, in a sense, included an element of what we might do. In fact, we've got this going on a bit now, have we not, when there's a lot of rather kind of in-the-sky debate about, well, would you form a coalition with you or an agreement or, you know, you know all of that sort of thing. But in a more serious way, won't it be the case that eventually parties start to begin to so, show slightly what they do, or it, certainly in the longer term, with other parties or whom they might work with, once they get over, and they haven't got over this yet, pretending that they won't go into a coalition and we can win this on our own? Absolutely. I, I think the voters have the right to know with whom particular parties would or would not form coalitions or agreements. And they've also the right to know which of the policies are bargainable 
and which are not, which are sticking points. That seems to be a democratic right. It's, after all, the voters who should choose the government, not the MPs after the election. I think there's a saying in the Netherlands where they used to coalition that you can win the election but lose the formation, and we don't want that to happen here. But I think one ought to point out, really, that all the experts are expecting a hung parliament. But the hung parliament of 2010 was reasonably manageable in the sense that whatever you think of the coalition, it did have a comfortable majority in parliament of 78, lasted for five years, and broadly provided stable government in the same way that a single-party government would. Now, we might have not a manageable parliament, but a much more fragmented hung parliament of the sort we had in February 1974, when no two parties, other than the Conservative and Labour parties acting together, Grand Coalition, which wasn't going to happen, but no two parties could get a majority, and that could happen this time, depending largely on what happens to the Liberal Democrats. If they were to lose a lot of seats then it might be the case that whether the Conservative or Labour parties could form a coalition with the Liberal Democrats, even if they could, it wouldn't bring you over the magic 325 figure. There were about three or right. more parties, potentially. Right. Well, that, I think that's unlikely too, but we, we do know that UKIP and the Greens, given our electoral system, really, however well they do in votes, are not going to win many seats. And the SNP, although it may win a lot of seats, won't form a coalition with any British party. Yeah. So we may be going, heading for a fragmented and unmanageable hung parliament, unlike that of 2010. Let's go back to 2010, because interestingly, Gordon Brown came second, Labour came second, but actually Gordon Brown didn't leave Downing Street immediately. He was in there. Now, as we move forward to uh, May the 8th, uh, immediately after this general election, if, if David Cameron's in Downing Street with fewer seats, possibly more votes, but fewer seats, does he have any reason to... St can he stay there, like Gordon Brown? Or do, I mean, can you come second and stay there and try to put together a coalition as a starting point? The constitutional position is that the incumbent Prime Minister can remain until defeated in Parliament in the Queen's speech, right. which is in effect a vote of confidence and the first substantive matter that will come before the new Parliament. Now, of course, on most occasions, uh, when a Prime Minister has clearly lost the election, they don't stay. There's no point. For example, in 1997, when John Major had lost to Labour, he could, in theory, have met Parliament, but what's the point? You're just going to be heavily defeated. But if there's an uncertain result, a hung Parliament, then a Prime Minister could remain, and Gordon Brown could have remained, if he'd wanted, to the Queen's speech to challenge the other party to vote him down. But at some point, he thought there, there was no reason to do that. It would be ridiculous. But this constitutional position conflicts, I think, with political perceptions, because in 2010, I think the political perception was that Gordon Brown had lost the election. Yeah. And there was a constitutional argument for him not resigning until a new government was clearly available, which took some days, around five days. Mm. And there is therefore a conflict. And you may say, if Cameron gets fewer seats than the 307, which he won last time, that the perception of the British public might be he sought a mandate and hasn't got it. He ought to go. But he um, might have more votes. I mean, interesting. He, I realise yes, that I, doesn't matter in no, this well, system. Well, I wonder if the British public... The this, it's a question of perceptions. Do the British public still see it in old-fashioned terms as two football teams, the Reds mm. and the Blues, the Blues have lost and therefore the Reds ought to have their chance? Yeah. Or are they really attuned to this new world we may be entering, which is really a fairly proportional world, uh, where it's votes that count as well as seats? We're not clear. It's a kind of in-between world, perhaps. And then we're not probably going to see a coalition this time, more likely a 
an agreement of some sort for a minority government, would you guess, whichever, whether it's the Conservatives uh, I, or Labour? It's difficult to <clears throat> predict, of course, but I think a coalition will be more difficult to negotiate because the Conservative backbenchers want to be consulted or demand to be consulted. They weren't last time. They were more or less presented with a fait accompli. Now I think they want a ballot. Um, the Liberal Democrats have very complex procedures, perhaps you'd expect, uh, to agree a coalition. And I think it'd be more difficult to get them to agree this time because last time they were told or believed that we were in a serious economic crisis and could go the way of Greece if we didn't have a stable government fairly quickly. And they were also offered a referendum on the alternative vote by the Conservatives, which was very important to them. There'll probably be fewer Liberal Democrats in the next Parliament. They'll have less leverage. And it may be that they will move to the left because two-thirds of Liberal Democrat seats... Uh, are challenged by Conservatives. So if they lose seats, it's likely to be to the Conservatives. Will they want to join with the Conservatives? It's possible they will move to the left, that Nick Clegg will no longer be leader and someone to the left will be leader. Now, a coalition with the Labour Party, I think, would split the Labour Party down the middle. I think it would be very difficult to arrange. So I think you're right that a confidence and supply agreement right. uh, may come about. With Labour, I think it would, would be with the SNP, which won't want to do anything to undermine a Labour government. With the Conservatives, it could be the Liberal Democrats, perhaps agreement with UKIP as well. We don't know uh, agreement perhaps on the referendum. But it's fair to say whatever government we have, it won't represent a national majority that a government of the left, Labour supported by the SNP, will probably not, not have a majority in England. And then the English will complain about English votes for English laws. What are the Scots doing voting for our education and health system when we can't vote for theirs? And a government of the right, a Conservative or Conservative Liberal government, like the present one, will almost certainly not have a majority in Scotland, which will enable Nicola Sturgeon to say, look, you see, once again, the Scots have got a government that very few of them voted for. So whichever way the election goes, it's likely to exacerbate the tensions between England and Scotland. And going back to your 1978-79 point, so if we had a minority government and from the start it was relying on smaller parties to not to, in fact, to defeat it, to defeat, not to defeat it in a confidence vote, it would be like 1978-79 but for several years and with the risk that there would eventually be a confidence vote, then we're up against the problem that there's now legislation making it more difficult simply for the Prime Minister to call another general election. Well, of course, we now have the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, and that doesn't prevent an early election, but it requires either a two-thirds vote in the House of Commons or the failure to form another government within 14 days after a vote of no confidence. Now, under that situation, a Prime Minister could put forward a motion calling for an election and challenge the opposition not to support it. And if they don't, he can say they're frightened and cowards and all the rest of it. It's fair to say the opposition might well not support it because, after all, a time that's good for the government is, by definition, not very good for the opposition. And the smaller parties, in general, won't want a rapid second election because they have no money. Uh, so such a parliament could hobble on. It could work with an agreement. We, we had the Lib Lab agreement, 77-8, a yeah. pact. That's probably the best way to work a minority government. But it, but it might, did break down, though. It did break. It well, came to an end, um, anyway. Yes, it had a fixed term of 18 months. Yeah. Um, I, I think it began uh, as a year and then was renewed for a further six months. Um, but this time, the Liberal Democrats, or the SNP, might agree to a longer-term um, proposition if they can get some of the things they want. I think one of the difficulties would be, on the left, that if the SNP supported Labour from outside, 
Um, we went to a very interesting lecture by Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the SNP yesterday, and she's very strongly hostile to the austerity policies mm. which are proposed by the Labour government, or the Labour Party rather. Not such a great degree of austerity as with the Conservatives, but cuts in public expenditure nevertheless. And this goes contrary to the expectations of many of those who intend to vote Labour, uh, the party's supporters, and of its own left wing, what Nicola Sturgeon calls the progressive wing. Yeah. Now, if we had a progressive block in the new parliament of the SNP, Plaid Cymru, the Greens, plus the left wing of the Labour Party, that could cause great difficulties for a Labour government. And I think the problem for the Labour Party is not the problem highlighted by the Conservatives, that there'll be a mad spending spree, but the problem is that their financial rectitude will conflict with what so many of the supporters and members hope for. And Trident would presumably be very difficult for that kind of Labour government to sustain. Well, Trident would be difficult because the leadership is all for it, but of course many of the MPs, perhaps the majority, are not. OK, one final point, one final question. What do you think is going to be the impact of having not just one a coalition, I say one um, general election where there's no majority at the end of it, but then another one, and possibly several? What's going to be this, the effect of this on the British political system over time? Quite profound, I think. We talked about a second election a few minutes ago, but of course a second election could yield to roughly the same result. There's no necessary reason to believe that a second election might lead to a majority government. And in my view, this will bring the issue of the electoral system back on the agenda because UKIP is likely to get, let's say, 10% of the vote for argument's sake, hardly any seats. And I think UKIP supporters will growl more loudly than Liberal Democrats did about the unfairness. And perhaps paradoxically, Nigel Farage favours proportional representation of the German variety. And of course, the Greens are also likely to get a low vote a low number of seats, rather, well, they're also in favour of proportional representation, as the Liberal Democrats are and the Scottish Nationalists. So there'll be a powerful bloc calling for electoral change. And it's worth noting, I think, that the disparity between England and Scotland is exaggerated by the electoral system. And people often say, well, the Conservatives have no support in Scotland. They've only got one MP out of 59. But they got 17% of the vote in 2010, one-sixth of the vote. And Labour was overrepresented with 41 seats. Now, on a proportional system, the Conservatives would have got 10 seats and Labour 24. So there is a disparity, but it's much exaggerated by the electoral system. Just the electoral system stops Conservatives being properly represented in the inner cities and Labour in the south of England. It makes the country look much more divided than in fact it is. So I think that's another reason why the electoral system will come back on the agenda after this general election. And even if there's an overall majority, it'll be on probably under 40%. So between two-fifths and two-thirds of the country will have voted against the government. Is that a national majority? And we don't even know the turnout. Which, Indeed. of course, could under. Anyway, thank you, Vernon. Thank you for your time. Great to talk to you. Thanks ever so much. Thank you.